Part 5 of An Excursion to the Lakes in Westmoreland and Cumberland, August 1773, by William Hutchinson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Around Keswick We visited a druidical monument within about two miles of Keswick, situate to the south of the road which we had passed from Penrith. This monument is placed on a plain formed on the summit of a hill, around which the adjoining mountains make a solemn circle. It is composed of stones of various forms, natural and unhewn. They seem to have been collected from the surface, but from what lands it is impossible to conjecture, most of them being a species of granite. These stones are fifty in number, and are set in a form not exactly circular, the diameter being thirty paces from east to west, and thirty-two from north to south. At the eastern end, a small enclosure is formed within the circle by ten stones making an oblong square. In conjunction with the stones of that side of the circle, seven paces in length and three in width within. In this place, we conjectured, the altar had been erected. At the opposite side, a single square stone is laid at the distance of three paces from the circle. Possibly this may have been broken off and is only the foot of such a column as Long Meg in the Salkeld Monument, which may have been used to bind the victims to. The stones forming the outward line are some of them standing erect, others fallen, and the same observation is to be made as to the appearance of entrances as at Salkeld. The stones here are of various sizes, some of the largest of those which are standing being near 8 feet in height and 15 feet in circumference. A clergyman whose property the pasture ground is, in which this monument stands, and with whom we gained an acquaintance during our stay at Keswick, told us he was determined to destroy the place as it prejudiced his ground, so that perhaps by these sacrilegious hands the curious will shortly be deprived of this valuable piece of antiquity. A late discovery has been made of large quantities of black lead, a mineral peculiar to this country and nowhere else to be found in Europe, amongst the gravel and earth on the shore of Vickers Island. Whether it has lodged there by the floods, or how otherwise has been collected, is not known. But so valuable the discovery was thought, that it occasioned an inquiry by what means the whole lake might be drained, conceiving that from this specimen immense wealth would be obtained by such an undertaking. The fish of this lake are trouts, pike, eels and perch. The romantic scenes upon the lake induced us to take a boat at night, under the favour of the moon, which was near the full. We began our voyage from after the moon was risen, and she had illumined the top of Skiddow, but from the intercepting mountains had not within the ascent of an hour reached the lake. We were surrounded with a solemn gloom. The stillness of the evening rendered the voice of the waterfalls tremendous, as they, in all their variety of sounds, were re-echoed from every cavern. The summits of the rocks began to receive the rising rays, and seemed to be crowned with turrets of silver, from which the stars departed for their nightly round. As the light advanced, objects arose to view, as if surging in the first morning from chaos. The water was a plain of sable, sprinkled over with gems reflected from the starry firmament. The groves which hung upon the feet of the mountains were hid in darkness 
and all was one grave and majestic circle of shadow, till the moon, rising in cloudy majesty, at length apparent queen, unveiled her peerless light, and o'er the dark her silver mantle threw, Milton's paradise lost, when the long protracted shadows of the mountains, cast on the bosom of the lake, showed the vastness of those masses from whence they proceeded, and still, as the moon arose higher in the horizon, the distant objects began to be illumined, and the whole presented us with a noble moonlight peace, delicately touched by the hand of nature, and far surpassing those humble scenes which we had often viewed in the works of the Flemish painters. Mists began to arise on the lake, and by reason of the air which bore them aloft, being confined and eddying within this deep circle, they were whirled round and carried upwards like a column, which so soon as it approached the rays of the moon, had a most wonderful appearance, and resembled a pillar of light. I recollect that Maupertuis, describing the lake and mountain of Niemi in Lapland, speaks of a phenomenon of the like nature, which the people called Haltius, and which they esteemed to be the guardian spirits of the place. Be these as they might, we may venture to assert, no druid, no Saint Herbert, no genius had a more glorious ascension. The moon's mild beams now glistened on the waters and touched the groves, the cliffs and islands, with a meekness of colouring which added to the solemnity of the night, and these noble and romantic objects struck us with reverence and inspired the mind with pious sentiments and ejaculations. It was observable that by day we were incessantly communicating our raptures and surprise on each new wonder that opened to our view. We now enjoyed them in silence. Every bay and each promontory assumed an appearance very different from what it had by daylight. The little dells which wind around the feet of the mountains as they were shadowed by interposing objects, or silvered by the moon, afforded most enchanting scenes, where we might have wandered with delight through the whole night. Where the lake narrows and runs up in a creek towards Borrowdale, the rocks looked horrible, almost shutting us in from the face of heaven, which could be beheld only by looking immediately upright. The cliffs were struck with scanty gleams of light, which gained their passage through the interstices of the hills, or chasms in the rocks, and served only to discover their tremendous overhanging fronts, their mighty caverns where the water struck by our oars made a hollow sound, their deformed and frowning brows, their hanging shrubs with which they were bearded, their sparkling waterfalls that trilled from shelf to shelf, the whole half seen and half concealed, leaving imagination at large to magnify the images of their grandeur and horrible magnificence. The pursuit which engaged us the next morning was to gain the summit of Skiddaw, which by the winding pass we were obliged to make, afforded a laborious ascent of five miles. The prospect which we gained from this eminence very well rewarded our fatigue. To the southeast we had a view over the tops of mountains, one succeeding to or overlooking the other a scene of chaos and mighty confusion. This was the prospect which Dr. Brown described by the image of a tempestuous sea of mountains. Below us laid the lake with all the beauties of its margin, together with the Vale of Keswick and the waters of Basnet. 
as if delineated on a chart. To the south, the hills towards Cockermouth, though less rugged and romantic than those towards the southeast, were yet no less stupendous. To the northwest, we had the prospect of a wide and barren heath, extending its plains to Carlisle and terminated by the mountains of Scotland. To the northeast, we regained the prospect of that spacious circus in which Penrith stands, the Queen of the Vale, overtopped by Cross Fell, which forms the most distant background. The air was remarkably sharp and thin compared with that from which we passed in the valley, and respiration seemed to be performed with a kind of asthmatic oppression. While we remained upon the mountain, over the hills which lay between Keswick and Cockermouth, dense and dark vapours began to arise, and in a little time, as they advanced upon a southwest wind, concealed from us those heights which we had viewed half an hour before, clear and distinct. Our guide was very earnest with us to quit the mountain, as he prognosticated a storm was collecting, and we should be in danger of being wet, or in hazard of losing our way in the heavy vapour, which he assured us would soon cover Skiddow. The circumstance was too singular to be left by people curious in their observations on natural events. We desired our guide would take care of himself and leave us to our pleasure, but the good attendant had a due sense of our impropriety in wishing to be left there, and determined to abide by us. The clouds advanced towards us with accelerated speed. A hollow blast sounded amongst the hills and dells which lay below us, and seemed to fly from the approaching darkness. The vapour rolled down the opposite valley of Newland, and appeared to tumble in mighty sheets and volumes from the brow of each mountain into the Vale of Keswick and over the lakes. Whilst we stood to admire this phenomenon, the mighty volumes of clouds which we beheld below us gradually ascended, and we soon found the summit of Skiddow totally surrounded, whilst we on every side looked down upon an angry and impetuous sea, heaving its billows as if boiling from the bottom. We were rejoicing in this grand spectacle of nature, and thinking ourselves fortunate in having beheld so extraordinary an event, when, to our astonishment and confusion, a violent burst of thunder, engendered in the vapour below us, stunned our sense, being repeated from every rock and down every dell in the most horrid uproar. At the same time, from the agitation of the air, the mountain seemed to tremble. At the time of the explosion, the clouds were instantaneously illuminated, and from innumerable chasms sent forth streams of lightning. Our guide laid upon the earth, terrified and amazed, in his ejaculations accusing us of presumption and impiety. Danger made us solemn indeed. We had nowhere to fly for safety, no place to cover our heads. To descend was to rush into the very inflammable vapour from whence our perils proceeded. To stay was equally hazardous, for now the clouds which had received such a concussion by the thunder ascended higher and higher, enveloping the whole mountain and letting fall a heavy shower of rain. We thought ourselves happy even under this circumstance, to perceive the storm turning northwestward, and to hear the next thunderclap burst in the plain beyond Bassnet Water. A like event has frequently happened to travellers in the heights of the Alps, from whence the thunderstorms are seen passing over the countries beneath them. The echoes from the mountains which bordered Keswick Lake 
from Newland, from Borrowdale, from Lodore, were noble and gave a repetition of the thunderclaps distinctly, though distant, after an intermission of several seconds, tremendous silence. The rain, which still increased, formed innumerable streams and cascades, which rushed from the crown of Skiddow, Saddleback and Causey Pike, with a mighty noise. But we were deprived of the beauty of these waterfalls by their intercepting vapour, which was not to be penetrated by the eye more than a few yards before us. We descended the hill, wet and fatigued, and were happy when we regained our inn at Keswick, which we now esteemed a paradise, although we had despised it before for its dirtiness and inconvenience. We took leave of our slovenly and besotted host, and pursued our route from Keswick to Ambleside, a stage of 18 miles. For romantic mountainous and wild scenes, this stage affords the finest ride in the north of England, the whole road lying in a narrow and winding dell, confined by a stupendous range of mountains on either hand. In some places the vale is not wider than merely to admit the road. In other places it opens in little valleys, and again is shut in various forms. We passed near the rocks of St John's, which on nearer view, lost most of their grotesque appearance, and as we winded by the feet of these lofty hills, creeks filled with wood afforded us many pretty though narrow landscapes, through which little rills, arising on the sides of the mountains, poured down their hasty and gurgling waters. The rain which had fallen the day before improved the beauties of the place. The cascades were innumerable and their figures various. At one point of view we took in nine cascades, falling from eminences seven or eight hundred feet perpendicular height. Where some of them fell from the very brows of the hills, they appeared as strings of silver, but descending further, spread into sheets of foam, and before they reached the middle of the hills, tumbled headlong from precipice to precipice with a confused noise. Every turn of the road and every valley gave us a new scene. The prospects were ever-changing and diversified. At length we reached a narrow lake, called Lazewater, where the vale widened. Scattered trees and some little enclosures adorned its margin, and here and there a cottage. We rode by the side of this lake for the distance of two miles, so far it stretched along the vale, on every hand enjoying little rural scenes, which renewing to us a succession of pastoral images which we had collected from the poets in our early years when the young mind was charmed with romance and the most fantastic ideas of rural innocence, retirement and love. Neither did these images pass in the imagination only, for in this sequestered vale we met with a female native full of youth, innocence and beauty. Simplicity adorned her looks with modesty and hid her downcast eye. Virgin apprehension covered her with blushes when she found herself stayed by two strangers and as she turned her eyes for an instant upon us, they smote us with all the energy of unaffected innocence, touched with doubtfulness. Her lips, which in the sweetest terms expressed her apprehension, showed us teeth of ivory, and on her full forehead, ringlets of auburn flowed carelessly. A delicacy of proportion was seen over her whole figure, which was easy and elegant as nature's self. My companion in a rapture snatched out his pencil and began to imitate, but the unaffected impatiency and sweet confusion of the maid 
overcame our wishes to detain her, and we let her pass reluctantly. After this little adventure we jogged on, silent and wrapped up each in his own cogitations, till we began to descend the hill towards the valley of Grasmere. We were roused by the unexpected beauties of the scene, and, as if moved by one thought, we stopped, gazed at each, and smiled, before we could condescend to snatch ourselves from the ideal pleasures we had been enjoying. We were each conscious of our situation, and at length laughed aloud, no otherwise communicating our sentiments but by our looks, which sufficiently explained our sympathetic and silent delight. End of part five. Recorded at Castlerigg Circle, at Derwentwater by Keswick, on the slopes of Skiddaw, and at Thirlmere.